Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Have you ever wondered what rainforest ants taste like? Today, we have flavor chemist Dr. Ariel Johnson to answer just that. We also discuss how wildfire smoke can flavor wine and the science of taste and smell. Taste molecules like sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami are mostly water-soluble. And smell molecules, which is basically everything else, are more soluble in alcohol and oil. So if you're trying to express, like, coffee beans, it'll be more bitter and acidic if you make an extraction in water and then incorporate that. Uh, If you want to just have the aromas of coffee, making a coffee butter or a coffee cream is a way to get that while avoiding bitterness. Also coming up, we make a no-fuss Spanish almond cake, and later, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt investigates food expiration dates. But first, we hear from barbecue expert Meathead Goldwyn about how to properly grill a steak. Meathead, welcome back to uh, Milk Street. Oh, it's always good to talk to you, Christopher. So, uh, how to cook a steak on a grill. You and I have discussed this before, and you basically disagree with everything most people think about how to cook a steak. Uh, well, I learned to grill from my dad, and my dad learned to grill from his dad, and his dad learned to grill from his dad, and that's the way most people learn to grill. And when you sit down and you think about it and you apply some current science principles to it, you figure out that a lot of that stuff is just wrong. So let's start with a cut. Thin steaks, thick steaks, uh, which primal cut are we dealing with here? Well, you went right to the heart of the question right now. People always ask me how to cook a steak hot and fast or low and slow, and it all depends on how thick it is. Now, this is, you know, whenever you cook anything, indoors, outdoors, you're doing a physics experiment and you're doing a chemistry experiment. This is physics. The steak is 70% water. It takes time for heat to move from the outside of the steak to the inside of the steak, whether it's in a grill or an oven or a frying pan. The heat, or it's actually better to think of it as energy, the energy is on the outside of the steak, and it heats up the outside of the steak, but it doesn't penetrate the steak. It's the heat that is stored in the outside of the steak that heats the inside of the steak. It moves from the outside to the center. So the warm air in your oven or in the grill is only cooking the outside of the steak. The outside of the steak's like a Uh, a capacitor or a battery. It just stores up the energy and that moves to the center. So it takes longer for a thick steak to cook than a thin steak, obviously. But if it takes longer, then you need to dial down the temperature on a thick steak. Otherwise, you burn the outside before you reach the ideal temperature on the inside. A medium rare steak, which we know for a fact is most tender at 130 to 135 degrees, that's medium rare. You can tell with a digital thermometer right spot on. You don't have to cut into it. You don't have to poke it with your finger. You can stick it with a digital thermometer and know precisely. 
But now, okay, I, you know, I like to argue with people. Me too. Yeah, I know. I've noticed that. That's why you're on the show. Uh, I've used a digital thermometer on steaks for years. But the thing I'm, I'm not sure about is, you know, I know I pick it up with tongs. I insert the thermometer horizontally. But I got to tell you, if it's half an inch one way or a quarter inch another way, I might do five readings and get six results. Right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of hard. Yeah. So how do you effectively determine the internal temperature of a stick? Well, you want to look for the geographic center, but it may take more than one stick and you may have to do a little averaging in your head. It's not going to bleed to death. This is not a balloon. You stick it with a thermometer, it doesn't go <laughs> and deflate. So don't worry about sticking it. So, okay, so a flank steak would be cooked maybe differently than a two-inch uh, sirloin or something. So let's assume you have a thick-cut steak. Now what? Okay, keep the temp down. I, I, I like to tell people when you're learning to grill, learn to manage two temperatures, a hot zone where you have radiant heat, Directly above that radiant heat is where you're going to sear. And the, the other zone is not hot. There's no heat directly below the meat, and that's going to cook the food by convection airflow. And you want to get that to around 225. And if you can nail 225, whether it's windy, hot, cold, rainy, you're in control because cooking is all about temperature control, and it's harder outdoors than it is indoors. So you're going to start your thick steak on the indirect zone where it's cooking by gentle convection airflow at about 225, and it's going to slowly warm from edge to edge at about the same rate. And what you're essentially doing now is you're cooking the inside of the meat, and you're going to bring it up to just a little below what your target temp is. If you want a perfect medium-rare steak, 130 to 135, bring it up to about 125. And once it hits that, then you lift the lid, and you move it over to the direct heat zone. Now, you're cooking now by radiation. You're cooking with infrared radiation when you're directly above the energy source, and then you're going to flip it, and you're going to flip it. You're going to be the human rotisserie because you don't want to build up energy. You just want to cook the exterior of the steak. You already cooked the interior on the indirect side. Now you're cooking the exterior. You're going for dark brown mahogany, edge to edge, bumper to bumper. Okay, so before you get the grill going, am I going to salt this meat and let it sit? In advance of cooking, you, you definitely want to salt your meat. Salt is the magic rock. Salt is just sodium and chloride, two little ions, and when they get on the surface of meat, they melt and they go to the center. Nothing else can penetrate. Um, garlic, sugar, the molecules are too large. They can't go more than a fraction of an inch, just into the little tiny cracks and crevices on the surface. But salt can actually go deep towards the center. And what salt does is it alters the structure of the protein and it helps it hold on to moisture. So it amplifies flavor and holds on to moisture. Salt is magic. It's the most important thing on your spice rack. So what about cuts? We didn't really talk about that in terms of what primal cut. Are you getting, a, you know, like a New York strip steak, a shell steak? What are you getting? 
Well, you know, most real steak lovers will tell you the ribeye is their favorite steak, and there's good reason. I mean, it, it, it's the perfect blend of fat and, and protein, and uh, you, you get a really great, juicy experience. The ribeye has actually two muscles. There's this round muscle that occupies most of the ribeye, and that's the longissimus dorsi, and it runs from the shoulder all the way to the hip. But there's this little curved muscle that wraps around the outside of it, and there's this thick layer of fat in between them. And that little curved muscle is the spinalis dorsi, or the rib cap. That is the best muscle on the animal. Um, the other steak I absolutely adore is the flank steak, which comes from underneath the animal, and it's a much tougher steak, but it's got so much flavor. And that baby, you wanna cook hot and fast. Get it right over the heat, and sear it, get it really dark, dark brown, maybe a little, little char on the surface and medium rare in the center. And that's a great steak. Meathead, thanks so much. Everything I wanted to know about steaks but was afraid to ask. Thanks. Oh, always fun talking to you, Christopher. Uh, let's get together and cook some steaks sometime. That sounds like a better idea. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> That was Meathead Goldwyn, founder of AmazingRibs.com and author of Meathead, The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling. Right now, Sarah Moult and I are ready to solve your culinary mysteries. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also the author of Home Cooking 101. Before we take our first call, I have a question for you, Chris. Have you found yourself baking things you've never baked before? Uh, I'm a baker. I mean, that's my first love in cooking. And oddly enough, I've been doing mostly savory food now. But the one thing I have made over and over again is that corn cake I got from Mexico. It's absolutely to die for. And it's very simple to make. You make it in a nine-inch cake pan. And... You know, it lasts maybe a day you know, in this household. So I every week I go buy three years of corn because it uses fresh corn. And it's just spectacular. And the only sweetness in it is a, you know, like a 15-ounce can of sweetened condensed milk, which hmm. is typical in baking in a lot of cultures. It's delicious. It's not too sweet. It's just excellent. That's really my go-to. And since, you know, bananas with the kids, uh, we just have oodles of bananas that are black. So it's banana bread every week and corn cake. That's sort of where we are. Sounds good to me. Not a bad place to be. No. Anyway. Okay, on to calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Carol, and I'm calling from Mount Shasta, California. How can we help you? Well, I can get local grass-fed oxtail at my grocery store for a very good price, and I love that there is collagen and marrow that will seep out of the bones and into the stew. Can you cook it without browning it first by either nestling it on top of sautéed onions and adding water or by placing it in a Dutch oven without liquid and baking it in the oven or by cooking it in a crock pot? Sure. Years ago at Milk Street, we came up with a method of cooking meat without browning first. So you essentially braise the meat in a Dutch oven, you know, a 375 oven for a couple hours, chop on maybe a cup of liquid, which could be tomatoes, it could be stock, take the top off and cook for another hour and a half or so, depending on the meat. And the meat is above the liquid, at least some of it is. And the heat of the oven will actually brown the oxtail without you doing any of the work at all. So you get 
you know, the browning, the Maillard reaction, but you don't actually have to do it as a first step. I agree with you. Oxtails full of all sorts of wonderful things. Uh, give you a nice, rich broth, great flavor, and they're inexpensive. Oh, that's great. So 375 oven with the lid on for an hour or for two hours? 350 or 375, depends how much meat it is. For a couple hours, about two-thirds of the way, halfway through cooking, just take the top off. And don't use too much liquid so the meat still is above the liquid. At least half of it is. And then the heat of the oven will brown the meat, and it looks beautiful. Okay, well, that's great. Because I don't mind the meat, the collagen and everything getting into the liquid. That would be great. But Oh, um, yeah. You did want to brown it. You, you'll get a fabulous sauce this way. It's a great idea. Oh, good. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad you're cooking with stuff like oxtails. You know, yeah. the cheapest cuts of meat often are the best. Are the most flavorful. Yes. Carol, good luck. Thanks for calling. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Diana Pelzer. I'm calling from West Des Moines, Iowa. How can we help you today? Um, I was making a quiche with my husband a few weeks ago, and we were wondering, is a quiche a pie? Oh, this sounds like there may be a disagreement between the two of you. (laughs) Yes, and we've agreed that you guys are the authority, and we'd like you to decide for us. Well, this is not based on a ton of research, but I'm going to say yes, it's a savory pie. Chris? Well, anything served in a pie crust is technically, assuming there is a board of certification here, is technically a pie, right? I mean, I mean, it used to be that pie crusts were made with flour and water, and they were never eaten. They were just a container, right, for cooking things in. So you cook it and then just eat the filling. And then someone figured out how to make a pie crust you want to eat. So they've always been pies. They're containers. So I would say, yeah, anything okay. in a yeah. Pie crust is, by definition, uh, a pie, right? So, Diane, who won? You or the husband? Well, I'm so glad that you answered that way, and I'll be happy to let my husband know that a quiche is a pie. So thank you so very much. <laughs> Uh-oh. Good. All right. Well, we're so, Oh, God, we love it when it's that simple. Sarah, we should have asked her which side she was on first, just no, to no, make no, no. sure. No, 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 no. No, I didn't want to bias your opinion. Oh. No, no. This way, it's uh, she's got a stronger case. So there you go. You go tell him. I will. Right now, I will. (laughs) Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question or need to resolve a culinary debate, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Sam from Franklin, Tennessee. How can we help you? I learned how to cook from working in a home kitchen, mostly by watching TV shows. And Nowadays, I make bread a few times a week, and we both enjoy it, my wife and I. But some of the recipes call for ingredients to be added at different times, and I was curious as to what that's about. I know in bread, you put salt in, and it will destroy the yeast's ability to grow and, and do things, but eventually they're together. Well, salt, I I once asked somebody this question 20 years ago. I went to a bakery, and he told me he didn't add salt right away because the salt would heat up the dough faster. And if the dough got too hot, it would kill off the yeast. So that was his answer. Okay. If you read about this, the answer is what you just gave, which is it inhibits the action of the yeast, which is also true. But that was his answer, which I thought was a pretty interesting answer. So that's why... 
on the first round in the mixer or the food processor, you don't add the salt. You let the dough rest 10 or 15 minutes, and then you start up again with the salt. Either answer is probably okay. Okay. So it's just about, in the case of bread, it's about heat. But I've also seen it for baking. Uh, my wife does some baking, and you know, we'll see where you do this. And even on your shows, we see where they put some ingredients in, they do some mixing, and then they put some more ingredients in. There's a lot of times where it makes sense. For example, if you take a typical Indian curry, they start with whole spices and oil, they get them going, and then they add some onions, and then they'll add ground spices later on. So there's a whole method to the madness. That is whole spices at the beginning, ground spices later on, so you don't end up burning the spices. So very often, you're combining certain ingredients to develop flavor, then you move on to the next flavor development step. You know, in breads, for example, one good example is before there was instant or rapid rise yeast, you had to proof the yeast, right? So put it in warm water because there's lots of dead cells around the yeast and you have to dissolve those to activate the yeast. Now, instant yeast doesn't have that outer covering of dead cells and that's why you can put it right in the flour. So that would be a good example of some recipes proofing yeast and some recipes not. I put it right in right in the beginning. So I, I have the flour in the bowl. I put the yeast on one side. I put the salt on the other side. And then I mix them together. And then I'll add the liquids. And what kind of yeast are you using? I'm using the uh, French yeast, the SAS. Yeah, that's good stuff. I think that all of the stuff about adding the salt later may come from commercial bakeries But in a home, it may not actually make much difference. So we really should do an experiment here. We should try one with salt at the beginning and one the regular way. And maybe Sam's got a point. I think you should. Yeah, that would be interesting to know. It's a good point. I'll watch your show to find it. And we'll give you credit, by the way. Yes. It turns out you're right. (laughs) Sam (laughs) said, (laughs) throw that salt in at the beginning. Right at the beginning. Right. Thanks, Sam. Well, have a great day, folks. You too. Take care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with Dr. Ariel Johnson about the chemistry of taste and smell. That and more in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, 
which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk State Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Dr. Arielle Johnson. She's a flavor chemist and also a fermentation expert. Ariel, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks so much for having me. Before we get into uh, the Nordic Food Lab and uh, fermentation boxes and all this, um, what is flavor? Because flavor isn't just physical, it's emotional. So could you talk about that? Well, it's true. Flavor is physical and emotional. Um, the way that I like to think about flavor is that there's a physical and molecular component. So... Every flavor that you experience from food comes from molecules. But there's also a super important, in fact, essential neurobiological and emotional component. So um, most of flavor is actually smell. And smell is a chemical sense. So we actually have molecular receptors at the top of our nasal cavity that bind with smell molecules. And then to actually experience smell and flavor, those signals are passed to the brain where they pass through the emotional centers and are checked against 
all the memories we have of smell sensations we've had before. So with flavor, you actually experience your memories of similar flavors and your emotions connected to those before you consciously perceive the qualities of the flavor. So would an individual's specific emotions and memories of those emotions affect the perception of flavor? I would assume so, right? Oh, absolutely. With tastes, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami, we have a certain amount of hardwired responses to those. So we have a natural attraction to sweetness and positive feelings about it and a natural aversion to bitterness, since that's often a signal for the presence of poisons. With smells, most of it is kind of a blank slate. So it's up to us from babyhood to build sensory experiences around smells and figure out if they are delicious and make us happy or dangerous and make us sad. Okay. So the Nordic Food Lab at Noma, uh, what is it people actually do there? Well, at the Nordic Food Lab, uh, which was started by Rene Redzepi, uh, the chef and founder of Noma in Copenhagen, and then later when we started the Noma Fermentation Lab there, those spaces are really dedicated to experimenting with every ingredient that's available in the Nordic region, as well as using the scientific method and literature reviews from all areas of science to understand how cooking and ingredients and flavors all work together. So the goal of all of this was to end up with foods or fermentations you could use, he could use in the restaurant, or was there purely a let's have some fun in the laboratory and see what we could come up with. Well, it definitely it definitely started out as uh, Noma had this creative rule that the ingredients they were using in the kitchen had to come from Scandinavia. So that rules out Parmesan cheese, lemons, olive oil, a lot of other things that if, especially if you're Western trained, like a traditional French culinary school, you're very reliant on. So the challenge became, how do you get a wide variety of tasty flavors from limited starting ingredients? So it was actually not really possible to draw a line between doing things strictly practically and strictly for exploration, since they all ended up feeding into each other. So give me an example of something you did that worked out really well beyond your expectations. Um, one of them was fermenting pumpkin seeds into miso. So, so miso is a traditional condiment from Japan with roots in China that starts with a very enzyme-rich mold fermentation on rice or other grains. And then traditionally for miso, soybeans are added to the moldy grains, which are called koji, and the starch-degrading and protein-degrading enzymes that the mold creates uh, go to work on the soybeans creating umami flavors and free amino acids and uh, sugars for further fermentation. So some of my previous experience was that if you did this with very fatty ingredients, there was kind of this like oxidized paint taste, but the, the pumpkin seeds had just the right balance of protein and fat that when mixed with this koji, it had this like amazing tropical fruit flavors that came out of it. Now give me an example of something you thought was promising, but just you couldn't make work. Something that I had trouble getting to work was fermenting blood. Um, one gets into the mindset, I got into the mindset of there are these ingredients around, you should think about what the composition of those ingredients are. Do they have starches or something that could be turned into starches? Do they have proteins? Do they have sugars? Um, and then you, you know, once you hit on something, you just start trying it out. So 
blood is a protein-rich liquid. But when, when I was working with it, the, the kind of livery metallic notes uh, came out in a really extreme way uh, that was not pleasant. So bad idea. Um, let's talk about insects. I was yeah. speaking to Kim Severson of the New York Times, who wrote a piece recently about the future of food. Mm. Uh, she thought that the insect ex- excitement about eating insects would wane. Um, <laughs> you probably have a very different point of view. I think you noted that rainforest ants taste like lemongrass, coriander, and ginger, which is surprising. So do you think that insects, um, not just as a source of flavor compounds, but as a source of protein, is something that's going to become part a larger part of the human diet going forward? Well, if you, if you have looked into insect signaling, you'll find out, as, as we did accidentally, that ants in particular use lots of flavor molecules called terpenes to communicate with each other. And they're some of the same terpenes that are in fruits and herbs and spices. Hmm. So it was not super crazy to, to find that flavor, although we weren't expecting it. But I mean, I think, I think insects for protein is already, is already happening. I mean, you have the exobar and other sort of protein meals and replacements. My, my hope, my interest is more using ingredients like insects or any other sort of novel ingredient and finding a really delicious way to eat them. But the, the sort of essentiality of macronutrients is inescapable. You're also a proponent of eating trees. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, they're aroma and flavor powerhouses. So w- what part of the tree are we eating and why? Well, if you eat cinnamon, you're eating tree bark. So um, some, some species of tree produce a lot of volatile and aromatic compounds in their bark, generally as a antifungal or an anti-insect defense measure that we find really delicious and cultivate and harvest and use as spices. But the twigs and branches and needles of evergreen trees also produce a lot of terpenes and delicious aroma molecules. Some of those have been traditionally used in brewing beer, but um, very young spruce tips are quite tender and acidic. Those are the initial baby shoots that emerge in the spring. So you can just pop those like a little piece of uh, citrus. And then the more mature spruce and Douglas fir and, and pine needles can make a great seasoning, actually, either either steeped in a vinegar or if you blend them in a blender with about three times their weight in salt, you can have this really like exciting, zippy, almost juniper-like sort of referencing gin, but um, also distinctly piney seasoning. Uh, wine and smoke. This was really interesting. Oh, yeah. Um, so could you just talk about that? Because I, I don't quite understand. It's a good magic trick. Just <laughs> g- 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 give me an explanation of what's going on and why. Well, in the last 10 to 15 years, because of climate change and uh, increases in summer temperatures, We started seeing in Australia and then eventually in California wildfires. And so what winemakers were seeing was that after a wildfire, their grapes smelt very smoky. And sometimes the smoky aroma would go away for a little while. So they would press the grapes, get the juice and ferment it into wine. But then it came back. So the smoke somehow worked its way into the grapes in a way that was much, much deeper than just depositing on the outside. And eventually what um, some grape biologists and flavor chemists figured out was that 
the grapes were actually absorbing the smoke volatiles using endogenous enzymes to attach sugar molecules to those aroma molecules, which was locking them away in a scentless form. But then when the grapes were fermented, yeasts have a lot of enzymes to undo those bonds, um, which is why generally wine aroma increases as it's fermenting. So these smoky smelling molecules that were locked away by the grapes were liberated by the yeast and the smoke would come back. Hmm. So this is, this is called smoke taint and it's a, an increasing economic and wine quality issue that a lot of people are focusing on. Are there some things you think home cooks or bakers in particular maybe uh, should know about food science that would be helpful to them in, in cooking or baking at home? Oh, definitely. I mean, for bakers, if you're adding seasonings or like garnishes to pastry, it's helpful to understand at a super basic level that taste molecules like sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami are mostly water soluble. And smell molecules, which is basically everything else, um, so like fruitiness, citrusiness, spiciness, herbal notes, those are all more soluble in alcohol and oil. So if you're trying to express a certain flavor of an ingredient like coffee beans it'll be more bitter and acidic if you make an extraction in water and then incorporate that uh, if you want to just have the aromas of coffee making a coffee butter or a coffee cream or a coffee mm. tincture uh, is a way to get that while avoiding bitterness these are excellent <laughs> you got an A on the test. I just want you to know that, that was very, you go to the head of the class. I feel like I'm back at my qualifying exam for my PhD. Well, it's a scientific process, which hopefully ends up with something good to eat. Right? Exactly. Ariel, it's been a pleasure and it's been fun having you on Milk Street. It has been so fun talking to you, Chris. Thank you. That was Dr. Ariel Johnson. She's a flavor chemist and the science officer on the reboot of Good Eats. Her forthcoming book is Flavorama, The Unbridled Science of Flavor and How to Get It to Work for You. Neurogastronomy is the scientific study of the brain and flavor. So here are some interesting facts. It turns out that the weight, color, and texture of the glass or cup you use to drink from has a very large impact on your perception of the contents, including freshness and pure pleasure. Studies have shown that if two cups have the same volume, the taller one is perceived as having more. For example, a tall champagne glass looks like it holds more than a round wine glass. Other studies have shown that plastic containers are perceived as holding more volume than glass. And people will consume more of a product if they perceive the package to be larger. In short, what we eat and drink from may have more impact on our enjoyment of food than the food itself. So once again, it's mind over matter. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen in Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Spanish almond cake. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. So we're talking about flourless cakes today, but this is an almond cake, not chocolate, which, of course, is that 1980s standby in every restaurant. Yeah. And this comes from Spain. So is this a traditional recipe in Spain? It's a traditional recipe in a region of Spain called Galicia. We went to a bakery there called Casamora. It's called the Tarta de Santiago. It's a flourless almond cake, really simple one bowl cake. If I were to describe it, I would say it's almost like if you took a French macaron and made it into a cake. It has kind of uh, chewy but dense 
texture, but somehow the density is not leaden. It's kind of a light dense, if that makes sense. Well, macaroons are light dense. Exactly. And I'm kind of light dense too, so <laughs> this is the perfect cake for me. So you said it's a one bowl cake, so how do you make it? So traditionally made with whole eggs, we found we couldn't get the lightness we wanted from whole eggs. We tried separating the eggs, so whisking egg yolks with sugar and then whipping egg whites separately. It was really hard to incorporate the whites into this base. This base is really, really thick, almost like Play-Doh with the almond flour in it. So we couldn't really get the whites to really give us the lightness we were looking for. So we tried something interesting by using whole eggs and then just adding extra egg whites. So that allowed us to incorporate that air we wanted, but kept it really really simple, all in one bowl. Is this baked in a cake pan or a springform pan? Or how do you bake it? So first we mix those eggs together with sugar, almond extract, vanilla extract, salt, and then you whisk that really vigorously for about 45 seconds and then add the almond flour. It goes into a cake pan, just a nine inch prepared cake pan. And we top it with a combination of chopped almonds and turbinado sugar. That mm-hmm. creates sort of a crispy crust on it. Some of these historically are baked with an actual crust, like a shortbread crust. So this was our way to mimic that. It bakes for about 50 minutes or so. And then you take it out, you let it cool, you stand around, you want to eat it, but you have to wait. You should let it cool completely. It's a really good idea. It's a different texture, warm and cool. So a Spanish almond cake, it's flourless, it's a one bowl cake. Just bake it in a cake pan. It's a macaroon in the form of a cake. Thank you. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for Spanish almond cake on 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we'll hear from J. Kenji Lopez-Alt about the real meaning of food expiration dates. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will be taking a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Rachel calling from Vermont. How can we help you today? I'm calling because I have not yet been able to master homemade ice cream. My sister gave me a machine a couple of years ago for my birthday, and I've used it several times. Um, but I always seem to have a coating on the spoon when I'm eating the ice cream. It seems like it's some of the fat solidifying maybe, but um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts as why this is happening, if it has to do with the ratio in the ingredients or the turning time or anything like that. Well, it's probably a combination of the two. Are you using a mixture of milk and cream? Yes. Good, because the ideal butterfat content is like between 12 and 20%. And cream has a higher butterfat content than that all by itself. You may be over-churning it. You make a custard base, I assume? Yep. Is it well, well chilled before you put it into the machine? Yep, I do that too. Um, I usually leave it in the fridge for several hours to up to a day. Yeah, a day would be better than several hours because that's another thing. You know, if it's not that cold before it goes in, it's going to take longer to churn. If it takes longer to churn, you might get that weird residue. Is this an electric ice cream machine, or is this the canister you put in the freezer? What kind of machine? Yep, you freeze the the canister middle part. Yeah. So the ratio is what, three cups of milk to a cup of heavy cream or something like that? It's one cup of milk to one and a half cups heavy cream. Ah, that's the problem. Okay, so that sounds like much too much heavy cream to me. I think Sarah's point, you need to have a lower butterfat content. Two tricks, quickly. To get ice cream to freeze so it's smoother, a little alcohol works really well. A few tablespoons of, let's say, vodka or something like that, which is tasteless, will help. Another trick, freeze part of the mixture and then add the rest of it in to the canister. And then the whole thing will freeze up quickly. And the faster it freezes, the smaller the crystals. So that's another way to get a better texture ice cream. I think your problem basically is there's just too much heavy cream. I agree 100%. One last thing you might try, creme fraiche in the ice cream. I don't understand why it works, but it made the best textured ice cream I've ever had. Uh, But again, I think if you just switched around your milk to heavy cream, you'll be fine. Yeah. All right. Well, Okay. Rachel, thanks for calling. All right. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a call. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, Chris and Sarah. It's Lori calling from Denver, Colorado. How are you? Good. I am actually calling you back I inquired about banana peels ah, a couple months ago. You were the banana peel lady. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. I remember, I remember this, yeah. And so what did you do with them? 
Sarah recommended banana peel bacon. That was a bit of a dud, if I'm being <laughs> oh, honest. Oh, darn. I was so <laughs> excited. I was getting ready to do it myself. I mean, it was okay, not great. And then I actually made banana peel chutney. Oh, that's a good idea, actually. I thought it turned out great, uh, really great flavors, but now I'm at a loss of what to do with that chutney. To me, it just it's too sweet for a savory dish. A couple ideas. I buy a tamarind chutney and put that with softened butter and mix them up, maybe two parts butter to one part chutney. And I put that on a warm bread, like a flatbread, and use that as sort of hors d'oeuvres or, you know, with drinks. And so you could make a flavored butter with it. The other thing I can think of is put a chutney on a roast chicken, but not at the beginning, sort of towards the end of roasting, just as a way of adding some flavor on the outside, of course, not the inside. And that's Mm -hmm. a pretty good trick, too. I mean, those are two things I can think of, Sarah. Well, I'm just wondering if maybe you need to doctor it. If you say it's it's too sweet, and things that I might add to it would be a little more acid. You know, it could be simple as lemon juice or maybe a vinegar and or some chilies. The chili will really tamp mm. down the sweetness. That's um, and I, I think that would help a lot to just make it less sweet. Okay. Putting it on goat cheese, for example, you know, a cracker with goat cheese, mm. a little chutney on mm. top. Or I like the, the thing that Chris suggested with putting it on top of chicken. You know, again, add mustard, add chilies, add lemon juice. And all the things I just said you could add to it will not make it any less shelf-stable. Or, you know, our editor, uh, Jam Hirsch, is a cocktail guy. And he just did a little video about adding jam as a way of sweetening cocktails instead of sugar syrup. For flavor, you could add a tablespoon to the mix. I also find chutneys, I use it all the time on when I make sandwiches. I find something on one half of the sandwich that's slightly sweet, and then I have something spicy like harissa on the other bread. One side something spicy, one side something sweet. It would be a great way to, you know, spice up a sandwich too. Grilled cheese sandwich. Perfect, actually. Very good idea. Anyway, you're a soldier. Thank you for sharing this with us. It's been such a fun time doing it, and hopefully I'll see a recipe for banana peel chutney on Milk Street sometime soon. Right, Chris? Yeah, but you're not going to see a recipe for banana peel bacon anytime soon. Oh, come on, Chris. I can tell you that. Just humor me. (laughs) Anyway, good job. You persevered and uh, came out. Thanks for calling. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. This is Most Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Mindy from Flagstaff, Arizona. My cooking tip is brush a steak or a salmon filet that you're about to pop on the grill. Brush it first with oyster sauce. It gives it an amazing lacquered caramelization and the je ne sais quoi, that people have no idea what makes this steak or piece of grilled fish different, but um, it usually garners rave reviews. Enjoy. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's food science writer, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. So Kenji, what have you been uh, thinking about this week? 
Uh, well, I recently wrote this article for the New York Times um, about expiration dates. Um, so I've been thinking about that because expiration dates are one of those things, you know, I, I, you know, my mom largely ignored expiration dates when we were younger. So sometimes I would come in and find, uh, you know, orange juice that had expired a month in the past or I, certainly spices that, that had been sitting there for 12 to 15 years. Um, in fact, she probably still has some of the same spices she had when I was a kid. Um, and then, you know, and as I became sort of like a teenager, I started thinking and telling my mom, you know what, this is kind of gross. I'm going to go through your fridge and just start throwing these things away. And I did that. And now as a, as a, as a father myself, I mostly ignore the expiration dates again um, because now I had always thought they were about food safety, about whether the food was fit to be eaten or whether it would make you sick. Right. Um, but then it turns out that it's not. That's not what they're about at all. Um, in fact, they have nothing to do with food safety. Um, so the, the only food that is required to have an expiration date on it is baby food. Everything else is there voluntarily, and it's there as sort of a manufacturer's best guess as to when the food is not going to be at peak quality anymore. But let, let me just stop you there. If they're not required to put an expiration date on, which means that a lot of foods would not be returned from the supermarket because since no mm-hmm. one knows what the expiration date is, aren't they losing millions of dollars for something that's not actually required by the federal government? Well, I, I mean, a food manufacturer, you know, if, if you're buying, you know, you see four different brands of milk and one of them doesn't have an expiration date on it and you buy it and it turns faster than you expected, then I would just stop buying that brand of milk. You know, I, I think they, right. I think they do have something to gain by predicting when their food is going to actually taste good. But, you know, the thing is that most foods will actually last well past their expiration date because that expiration date is really just a guess about best quality. And, and of course, you know, that, that guess is really, it's, it, that's what it is. It's a guess because they can't tell exactly how the food is going to be shipped, how it's going to be stored, whether someone carried it around the supermarket and then decided to put it back on the shelf. You know, and then once you get it home, of course, they don't know how, how you're storing it at home, you know, whether you're drinking the milk out of the carton or whether you're, you're opening up the jars with dirty hands, etc. So it's really, really difficult to actually predict how food is going to behave once it leaves the factory. So usually those estimates are actually pretty conservative. Um, so if you're treating your food well, um, it's probably going to last well beyond the expiration date does. So you mentioned something interesting. You said whether you drink out of the bottle or you had dirty hands when you open the jar. So introducing bacteria into a container that you just opened, that could have a substantial impact on the longevity of that food? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So let me give you an example. Like at my restaurant, we go through a lot of cheese and we, you know, we get giant blocks of it and then we grate it. Um, so that's one of the things where we require gloves because we know that if you grate cheese with bare hands that you've just washed versus grating cheese with, um, with gloves on, it'll last for like weeks longer like really? you'll start to see you'll start to see molds um, sooner and, and i did this little experiment at home with my daughter where we bought a package of grated cheese from the supermarket hmm. um, one handful we picked up with just our hands before we washed them uh, another handful we picked up after carefully scrubbing our hands and then the third one we picked up with gloves on our hands um, and then we put them in containers and stored them in the fridge and the one that you that you touch without washing your hand obviously starts to mold really? weeks before the other two um, and gloves is the longest but but yeah absolutely so milk for instance um, especially if you get like the UHT milk, ultra high um, temperature pasteurized milk, that milk is is heated to 250 degrees Fahrenheit, which is hot enough not just to kill bacteria and viruses, but to actually destroy spores as well. And then it's pumped aseptically into containers um, and sealed. So it should be completely sterile in there, which is why it lasts for months and months. So there's nothing really going on in there until you open it. And then bacteria from hmm. your mouth, from the air, that's when bacteria start to get in. And that's when the sort of the, the clock starts ticking on when it's going to go off. 
So what about eggs? You know, I've heard all these rumors about eggs being older than they say. I mean, what's the deal with eggs? I mean, the French used to keep eggs on the counter. They never refrigerated them, right? Uh, yeah, well, they still do that in lots of parts of Europe. Um, you know, the, the reason they do that is because well, in the U.S., eggs are washed, and that sort of removes is that waxy right. cuticle surrounding the egg. So um, you then have to refrigerate them because it, it makes them more air permeable and it makes them more permeable to bacteria and viruses. Um, whereas in Europe, they don't wash them before selling them. So, you know, it's sort of like in one case, they are, they're dirtier when you buy them, but you don't have to refrigerate them. Whereas in the U.S., they're cleaner when you buy them, but it's then easier for them to get reinfected. Um, so it's, it's sort of a... Um, a trade-off. A trade-off. That's right. A trade-off. So, so how old are eggs when you buy them, and how long do they last? You know, in most parts of the country, eggs, uh, the expiration date that they get on them is thirty days after they were packed, um, and usually they can be packed up to thirty days after they were laid. Although in most cases, they're probably getting packed actually like the day of or the day after they're they're laid. Um, which means that you know, if you add those numbers together, you get about sixty days as your lifespan for for an egg um, in refrigeration, um, and that's of course just the sort of you know the peak quality level. Um, they're, they're, in reality, they're probably going to last a month longer than that. You know, 90 days is not unreasonable for an egg to last. Are there any foods other than dairy products where you should be really concerned about expiration date versus other foods? Well, there's there's none that I would really look exactly at the label, you know, other than just as a loose guideline. You know, I think using your nose and your, your senses is the best way to tell if something's off. Um, and of course, you know, when in doubt, throw it out. You know, th- things where you should be worried, um, where that, that can actually get you legitimately sick are canned goods and, and jarred goods where, you know, if a can is bulging or if it shows any rust, um, that's an indication that there might be um, you know, bacterial action going on inside or that the seal has been contaminated so liquid is coming out and rusting the exterior. Um, or or with, a, with, a, with a glass jar with a screw top, if the button's popped up, that means that there's probably some kind of bacterial activity going on inside. Um, and that's the kind of stuff you want to really be careful with. But, you know, other than that, things tend to last a long time. You know, spices, for instance, you know, I, I said I went to my mom's house and I'm sure she has spices that are 35 years old from when I was a kid. Um, those spices are probably not going to kill you. They, they most likely they're not going to taste like anything, but they're probably also not going to really harm you to eat. But but I've had I, I'm going to push back. So sure. my mother, you know, had the same spices she bought I think when she first got married after the Second World War, and those were tasteless. But I I got some spices from what trip once North Africa, and um, three or four years later, some of that stuff was still really pungent. So mm-hmm. is the six-month rule or one-year rule really a good rule? Do a well-preserved you know, fennel seeds or something like that actually last and are fresh a long time? Oh, yeah. It, I mean, it all has to do with how you store it and the state at which you buy the spices. So, you know, so whole spices will last a lot longer than ground spices just because ground spices have more surface area for you know, the aromatics to, to jump off from. Um, but yeah, if you, if you, I mean, if you seal it, you know, if you, especially if you like vacuum seal your spices or you put them into jars with really tight screw tops um, and you keep them in a, in a pantry, you know, it's, it's the same basic rules that I think most of us know, which is like, you know, light, heat, and air are the enemies of freshness for pantry ingredients. Um, one, one thing to note in your pantry, though, is that um, with grains, whole grains don't last quite as long as, as more refined grains. So whole wheat flour will go off right. before white flour does. And it's because of the, of the fat that those contain. Um, that tends to go rancid. So you, and, but, you know, it's something that you'll smell before. Like, you should be able to pretty easily smell it. It gets like a kind of soapy, um, metallic smell to it, you know. And cooking oils also, I notice, get very fishy. 
If there's any odor yes. coming off of your cooking oil, then you've got a problem, right? Yeah. If it, if it smells fishy um, or smells soapy, then for sure. And and also um, touch wise, like if you if you um, put a little drop of it on your finger, um, it should feel slick. If it starts to feel sort of tacky or sticky, then that's an indication that also that has probably gone rancid. And you know, and again, that's probably not going to kill you to eat it. Uh, it's just not going to taste very good, and it's not going to behave in the way that you expect it to. So expiration dates are not about food expiring. They're about when food is at its peak, which is a very Correct. different thing. So next time I get a bottle of half and half, I'm still going to look at the expiration date because <laughs> yes. I find that stuff really does go bad. But a chocolate bar, eh, maybe not. Yeah. Thank you, Kenji. Thank you. That was J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the chief culinary consultant for Serious Eats, a food columnist from the New York Times, also author of The Food Lab. The fact that expiration dates are relatively meaningless makes me think of some other perfectly useless product labels. Here are some of my favorites. On peanuts, may contain nuts. On a shoebox, average contents too. On a Superman outfit, does not enable where to fly. And in a car manual, it says... In order to get out of car, open door, get out, and then close doors. So what's next? Usage labels on bananas? That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsaba. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.